11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. On today's show, we talk about card payments overtaking cash in the UK. Could cash finally be on its way out now? As Lloyd scrapped their overdraft charges, we discuss what their motivations could be for this. And WorldPay sells to Vantiv for $9.1 billion. Now, this is a huge sum, but their share prices are tumbling. All this and more on this week's Fintech Insider News. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices at the wonderful WeWork in London. My name is David Breer, and today on the show, I'm joined by our regular guests, Gela Boscovich, whose name I only know actually because of the pronunciation of actually hearing Simon say it about 10 times when I haven't actually been on the show. So you've been on a bunch of times. I've only been on with you once before. Is that right? Right, right. It's a romance that apparently is never going to happen. It's doomed. <laughs> it's at, but, least, at least from a distance. At least you know how to say my name properly. Well, was that right? Finally. Brilliant. Founder of Femtep Global, and we have Ed Maslavekis, CEO and co-founder of Bud. We have Jeff Tyson, head of fintech for Capco. Hey, Jeff. Hi there, guys. And we have a special guest literally stepping off the Eurostar to run all the way here, Gabriella Inzirillo, which I think of the, all of the names that were here, I was probably most confident in saying your one, which is bizarre. So, uh, And you're the co-founder at BMP Paribas Plug and Play. Yes, yes, I am. Very well, cool. I'm part of the founding team. I was uh, exiled from California to build BNP's uh, global innovation program. Wow. That's a good place to be sent to. Paris, right? Uh, you know, I live my exile well. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, before we get on with the news, we've got some exciting news of our own. Uh, we've launched a news platform called Fintech Insider News that's currently running in alpha mode. So while we test this out and the idea of that being kind of hacker news for fintech and banking, um, we'll be gradually introducing people into that and moving the platform forward. So if you want to be involved in that, drop us an email to finews at 11fs.com and we'll let you know when that's ready to go. Let's get on with the news. So first up in the news, we have one from Business Insider. This is UK card payments overtake cash, but less bought on credit. So feels to me like cash is finally dying out. Is that the case? I hope so. Ed, I just saw a five pound note drop out of your pocket, not but a five minutes ago. So clearly not everybody's sort of getting rid of it's cash. It's like right? just in case money. Is it? You know, zombie apocalypse. I carry it on. We just remember where, where we came from. So yeah. what, what's happening on this one then? Is it is it really cash is disappearing or is it just that the credit side of things is dropping out? I don't think cash is disappearing. I mean, to me, when I read this, it, it's not really a surprise. Well, I mean, it's fueled by contactless as well, which is obviously a massive increase in, you know, in, in, in the past 12 to 18 months. So it doesn't really come as a massive surprise. I mean, when I look at myself as well, am, am I still using, I hate cash. I, I absolutely despite the use of cash. Let, let, let's be clear. We all love cash. We just don't like physical <laughs> cash. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So I think this is quite an interesting one though. So the fact that we're all, I, I guess we potentially were in a, in a bit of a bubble on this one to a certain degree, but you know, for the first time, cash is actually being outweighed by, uh, you know, the, the sort of card payments, you know, tap payments. That feels like a big deal. You know, we, we talk about sort of fintechy bubbles for quite a lot, but it's kind of in the psyche of like the general public, right? Well, I actually think it's convenient. It's light. You always, you know, you can control it. You get a budget out of it. It's a lot easier to track your spend. Um, it's super convenient with contactless lately. Uh, why would you force yourself to carry something? And more merchants are taking it, right? It's the ease and convenience of, of transaction. It's kind of that ideal thing of 
less friction. So cash is friction full. Are we we starting to see the sort of, you know, very much on the, you know, underground and sort of uh, different sort of contactless payments pieces that are driving sort of adoption of this? Are we seeing, uh, you know, a similar, like that guy in front of you in prep trying to count out the 20 P's for his black Americano type And you want to punch him in the yeah. face when he does. It's we, like, we no, talk. man, I need my caffeine. Move it. And I got my card and here. I need it now. Exactly. So is it becoming etiquette now to not use cash? Yeah, so like a third, I think in, the, in this article it says a third of all transactions are contactless. That's like a significant behavioral change. Now. That take, yeah, yeah, that indicates that there's a, an absolute change in what people understand transactions should be or could be, right? I mean, and, and the fact of the matter is, is it's a whole lot easier to keep a hold of that. There's very little risk to it. You know, you can call and have it canceled. It's just a security measure. It's also a convenience measure. I mean, if I go and buy lunch and I want to tap out, I don't want to stand in queue forever. Mm. So it's a time management thing. I think it's just massive convenience and people have finally adopted it. Then it's now how we move it to, to wearables. How do we actually do it to something else? Where do we get rid of the card? I think in another 18 to 24 months, we'll be talking about the rise of, you know, contactless, contactless properly being adopted in terms of wearables. And we'll see an increase of or injectables or inject. Oh my God. Give me that tattoo already. I so want my tattoo. Um, so, uh, next up, we have another story from Business Insider. So, this is Americans, and I guess kind of following up the last one in terms of, uh, where the UK is going with, uh, with payments. America is hooked on credit cards. That doesn't sound very positive to me. Well, it's actually not a surprise either, right? So, debt financing is a big thing in the States. But if you look at the numbers, it's actually the loyalty programs that are most important. And when you get rewards, I mean, I use a particular card every time I purchase my flights for a reason, because I can fly around the world for free at some point. And why wouldn't I rack up as many ancillary benefits as I possibly could? And if that's the easiest way and the most prominent way of getting into a loyalty program, you're going to use it. Also, let's be honest, everybody's really into instant gratification these days. And credit's the thing. So we don't have great financial education across the board. I'd say in any geography, any jurisdiction. But the fact of the matter is money is cheap, really cheap. Why wouldn't you do credit? And why wouldn't you credit that has a loyalty reward to it that you can benefit with additional instant gratification? The the article doesn't really sort of go into whether this is kind of revolving credit or whether actually people are sort of paying it down each month. So, you Well, know, let's look at the debt ratio in the States. It's going to be revolving credit. Which is a problem, right? And and I guess, you know, the, the major sort of reward schemes from, you know, players like American Express are usually pay down each month. Uh, you know, there's no element of, um, you know, being able to kind of keep adding to that and building up your kind of debt to drag around with you, essentially. But um, yeah, I, this doesn't feel like a good thing to me. You know, I've kind of generally always been brought up to spend what you've got and not much more than that approach. So, you know, putting everything on a credit card and feeling like you're rich is probably a negative place to be. You know? So if you look at the housing crisis, if you look at uh, the auto manufacturers crisis, if you look at all of these things where they're pushing for consumption and the U.S. is very much driven by a consumption based economy, that the only way you can actually promote that is encourage people to debt leverage. And it's not necessarily the wisest choice, but how do you prime the pump? And in terms of fiscal spend uh, for the U.S., a lot of it's been encouraging uh, commercial activity. And that's not at the industrial level, that's at the actual retail level. So in part, it has a, a very natural cadence for what the U.S. has promoted in terms of consumption economy. And then when you bundle it with different perceptions of rewards or different avenues to, to access different things or, or what you see as a benefit, it's also, it's that same principle of, you know, saying it's 
10.99 instead of $11. It's that same sort of mental hook that people go, well, I can actually do that. And if I can have this revolving line of credit that I can actually shift across different credit cards or different organizations, people do that as a way to manage their budget. You've got really high student debt. You have really difficult housing market to get into after the financial crisis. You've got an entire generation that still lives at home and has very limited access to, to job growth or to, to actual income, um, career based income. Then you're going to be using debt. And so it, it doesn't surprise me in the least, but it's a social and, and political move. I mean, I just want to chime in and remind everyone that the average American household has $15,000 in credit card debt. Precisely. So this is not, this is not any, any surprise. No. I mean, if we see it at $45,000 average, panic. <laughs> then we panic, but at 15, that's pretty average. Yeah. We've seen sort of statistics of, I'm going to use the M word for the first time, I think on this podcast of millennials mm-hmm. in the UK actually reduce their credit card spend versus versus uh, debit, which has been interesting. So obviously there's like, you know, you, you see you, there's a feeling that sort of culture is shifting one way because of social media, but actually, you know, there is actually a massive divide in, in, in the way that we spend here compared to the US. And I'd say that's really culturally driven, right? So do, do you see that changing anytime soon? No, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think of the political climate and I think of the the representatives that are now sort of setting the social tone. I think of the conversations in the media, especially in the political media. We're having examples that actually say, you know, spend freely, consume. It's all about the business. It's all about the hustle. It's all about the deal. Who cares if you actually have to file bankruptcy five times as a business owner in order to get your casino launched? It doesn't really matter. So I think, I think if you're looking from a social context, there's not a lot of uh, fiscally responsible social role models. I mean, when you look at the Kardashian consumption kind of Instagram sort of thing, it's the same principle, right? I mean, look at it. I mean, if we're going to relay what behavior looks like, it's what we're prompted by socially. It's not that we're playing rational actor and maximizing our budgets. It's very much this irrational actor that wants to have a certain social status and social and access to different goods and services. And if you're going to leverage it, you're going to leverage the debt to do it. But a, that's, tri- a trillion in revolving debts is, is nuts. Phenomenal, yeah. right? But then again, I don't know. And I can't speak for the entire country, but I'd say that there's a predominant tone that says spend, spend, spend. It's good for you. In fact, sales are repetitive. Sales are constant. The entire business model of of, of retail goods is about pushing consumption. There are false advertising. I mean, there's false holidays to push sales. It's about consumption. As somebody who spent seemingly a alarming amount of money on Amazon Prime Day this week, then uh, I can I can absolutely attest to I mean, that you one. Saved a it's lot my of money. favorite holiday you of saved the year. So exactly, money. And right? it's been that way since I was little, apparently. <laughs> so uh, but very very interesting. And and I think definitely not holding you completely responsible no, for No, I'm everything. not liable for everything. This is thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the reassurance that I'm not going to be taken to court over my opinion. Um, but I would I would actually say it's much more of a social move and it's it, I'm not surprised by it in the least. I'd be I wouldn't be surprised to see higher numbers of total household debt, and I wouldn't be surprised to see higher usage over credit credit over debit. So moving on from Americans being sort of moved to debt to Brits being unmoved by the digital challenge banks in the UK. So this is uh, a study that was uh, published through Finextra looking at the statistics behind whether Brits actually give a damn about challenger banks. Um, what do you guys think about this one before I stand on my soapbox? I mean, I think it's it's crazy, right? So yes, we're unmoved. Well, who who could who could you move to? 
right? Like, there's nothing Ooh, yet. That was very literal, but well, yeah, but like, completely true. Like, it's not. They're, they're not ready yet. We know this, right? So I feel like it's a little bit of a uh, uh, kind of banker view of nothing's really happened. Keep calm, carry on. But you know, between sort of some of the digital challenges, you've got over a million customers there. Now, the difference that we have to realize is, if bankers keep thinking it's about the current account, they're doomed mm-hmm. because it's not about switching your current account. It's not about switching who you bank with. It's about switching where you bank. And you don't have to switch your current account in a post-PS2 environment to change how you bank. And you lose control control that the bank calls it or relationship with your customers. We would kind of understand it very easily. You can you can do it overnight. You don't have to switch. So as soon as the customers, as soon as banks realize that, then there's something bigger going on than they realize. Well, actually, it's a fundamental business model shift, too, for banking. It isn't about the current account. It's not about money. It's actually about permissions and controlling the, the permission and verification of identity at this point, especially in a post-BSD2 environment. So when we think about that, it has nothing to do with where your money sits. It has everything to do with who's owning your identity or verification of identity and giving you approval or you granting permission. It has everything to do with who you are and not where you're banking. A lot of challenger banks still have to diversify their portfolio. Mm. Right? So they just offer a current account or, or a prepaid debit card. So am I going to move my NetWest mortgage to who? What? Because none of them really offer... Uh, Atom at this stage in that, in that regards from a mortgage perspective. Yeah, but I'm still not banking on will I am to actually like get my mortgage <laughs> right, right. Just saying. But no, that's, that's the point. It's like the diversification of actual product and service, right? And if you're looking just at retail, that's a limited market. And why not actually serve a market that's completely underserved? If it were challenger bank for SME, challenger bank for corporate, that would be much more interesting, in part because the product portfolio would have to be diversified from the get-go. But on Jeff's point on, you know, you don't have to move your mortgage. Again, you don't have to move your mortgage. You can use – you can – interact with it, make payments. You can see where your balance is from a challenger bank. You don't have to have changed your core product. So it's all about changing relationships when the bank has very much stepped away from investment in, in one-to-one relationships. You can do it digitally. I think the, the worrying thing, and I, I kind of posted something on Twitter recently about my what my Lloyd's account looks like today. And it's basically just a bunch of standing orders and direct debits and me putting money in Monzo. Um, so I, I kind of think the, the identity thing is definitely there, but I think there's like a huge data play in this. You know, I think in the, in the world where all of my data still sits with Lloyd's, Lloyd's can still feel comfortable, but actually at the point where you've just got a bunch of zombie customers kind of moving around and you're not actually seeing anything and all you're inheriting is the operational cost because actually exactly like you say, Ed, it's being facilitated through a person who's actually providing me a much more compelling experience. Then, you know, that's not a pretty, sort of picture of the future of, for, for the banks, right? Well, let's take that notion of what experience is like for the end customer. And again, I'm going to say, let's look beyond retail because this is a much more interesting thing when you get beyond retail. Mm-hmm. It's actually that really interesting question around unstructured data and the data that, that banks house. Now, if they had a strategy around repackaging unstructured data and they could actually ask the right ontological questions that they can run through very interesting algorithms on the AI side, then that becomes a much more compelling thing when I start to really pinpoint my credit risk, my credit worthiness. I can look at my transaction history and start to slice and dice it from my own behavior as a, as a customer. And if I had someone providing me with insights that were incredibly relevant around that unstructured data, and again, it maps to my identity because every one of those particular transactions is a facet that confirms my identity in this verifiable space. 
that becomes interesting. And then how can I leverage that? And how can I as an end customer actually start to commercialize on the data that I've given the banks? And if the banks can figure out how to commercialize that data for their end customer, that's a fundamental shift in the business model. It also becomes incredibly relevant and it changes the way we even consider looking at challenger banks. I think if they got their data strategy right, and if they were actually able to take every aspect of unstructured, it meets a whole lot of problems they already have, which is compliance related, reporting related, and they can do credit profiling or risk mitigation much better. But it all leads back to an also improved customer experience that manages identity and permission. Agree. Generally, not something banks are great at, though, data. Uh, I guess this is No, the- but I mean, like, that's the starting point. I'd say you've got one place to start in a bank. You've got to rehaul something. I'd say look at your data architecture. First and foremost, you know where it is. By the way, that that is what I usually charge for in consulting. I'm giving away free look at your data strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, little, little tidbits in each and every episode, I'm sure. But uh, um, I guess, you know, talking about that, moving on, there's a, a story in The Guardian actually talking about Lloyds Bank. So talking about innovation in, in business model. This is Lloyds Bank brings in a single overdraft rate in a radical shakeup. So you know, overdrafts, there was a, a study done recently that um, overdrafts makes up about 30% of all of the revenue that big banks make from from current accounts. And this is Lloyds Bank actually saying, you know, given all of the, the sort of moves that the challenger banks are making, like the Monzos, the Starlings, not to bring about sort of punitive charges, then is this a very sensible and very timely defensive play against the challenger banks? It's actually a compliance play. The FCA FCA has to is capping extraordinary or extortionate fees. So this is one way of hedging the bet that says we're already compliant. We've got this automated. Then no matter what happens, we don't have to run a report to prove to you we're compliant on our overdraft policy. So in my sense, that actually reduces their operational costs. It certainly reduces the the human capital that has to go into managing that. And frankly, it, it does kind of give a little bit of a subsidization to those who do abuse overdraft. You're, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, it's it's a compliance play, but it has a nice impact on the business model. Right thing to do. I think something that every single bank should be looking at. I think if there's one thing that really pisses off customers, it's you know, overdraft charges, ridiculous charges for international payments. And I know a lot of banks are looking into that. I mean, you know, to, to build on Galaxy Point, banks will have to notify customers anyways right, going forward. So the, you know, the move that Lloyds is making now is definitely the right thing to do. And I think very much welcomed by customers as well. I think it's a lack of visibility that usually exists, right? Mm. So recently my bank just decided I needed to change the type of current account I had. Mine too. And I was like, okay, cool. Then I got a letter saying these are the different rates of charges for various different things. And, I was, and so now I have a worse deal, which actually the person, the lady on the phone told me it was, I had this new great deal and I was going <laughs> to be one of their like special customers. <laughs> and now I feel like a... You're still a special customer. I am special. <laughs> but it's special but, uh, in that very inverted Special in special. That, yeah. <laughs> special in like, you, it, what does a v, what, what's VIP mean? It means it's more expensive. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, for, for me, it's like this, the lack of visibility. And that's what sort of challenges have been very good at again, saying this is what it costs. Um, with their, you know, even they've been very visible with their, their business models, which has been a good and a bad thing. Um, but, you know. I think, I think it's the right move to, to, to show clarity. Now, if you can actually show those fees in the banking experience as well, these are the fees. Do you want to do something about it? Mm-hmm. Um, you could get a credit card, for example, mm-hmm. and that might be cheaper. So, um, you know, it does op- 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 open opportunity, but, um, I think it's a, a nice move. 
I think this is a an interesting one because, you know, to your point, this is like one of those moments of truth as in like you've charged me how much for, you know, an, an overdraft and it's like, I don't know, £10 a month, uh, £10 a day or something along those lines. So, you know, the idea that they charge you that, that's going to be one of those major moments that actually push you away from that bank. And, you know, given that there is, despite the uh, story before in terms of being unmoved by the, uh, you know, digital challenges that at the point where those guys have got uh, actually established themselves a little bit better, then moments like this are really going to be sort of shoving you into the arms of really well marketed, you know, much more focused digital experiences for me. Because customers are becoming more demanding as well. And so customers no longer accept the fact that you have to pay X amount of money you know, for overdraft or international payments or whatever it might be. So I think that's the great thing about a Monzo and a Revolut. And you know, if, if a bank charges me X amount of money for you know, just making a simple international payment, I'm getting really, really pissed off and I stop using my own bank. Yeah, to make those payments. Yeah, they they are. Uh, we're, we're getting like those things are negotiable as well. You know, anybody who's listening who has been charged that I did recently for, I think I just forgot to pay myself for a little while, which is an interesting dilemma to have as well. Um, and actually, it turned out that we I went overdrawn and got really irate at my bank because you know that was the only thing, and they can waive it. So if you if that happens, ring up. Yeah, but at the same time, how does that actually fit into the customer experience, right? If I'm getting irate every time I have to, there's a blip on my my account history, and I have to call and I spend the hour negotiating with somebody who has to go up the chain in order to waive a fee. Not not interested. I would actually rather have the transparency right beforehand, and I accept the consequence of going overboard. But do it in advance as well. I mean, exactly. you've got the data, so why aren't you telling me a couple of days in advance to say, based on your spending pattern, you're likely to go overdraft in a couple of days from now. Yeah, here's what you should do about it. Or I can offer you a loan or a credit card yeah, or whatever. But, right? but that's also the missed opportunity for upsell and cross-sell on the banks, yeah, right? Of course. But it's like everybody's offering basic PFM, personal financial management. If you have that insight into what the payment history looks like, again, this is all about the data and the reporting of the data, but sharing that insight with the customer, which is exactly what challenger banks are really banking on, pun intended, that why wouldn't a traditional bank do that, especially since they have so much more historical information on this? Well, and, and definitely seen as we've, you know, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing things coming forward about, you know, disruption in business model. We saw Dyna Big's appointment at HSBC and kind of all of the changes that we're expecting to sort of come through there. Everything that's in, in any industry where you see a real sort of uptick on the potential for uh, data, the the positioning becomes about preventative measures rather than, uh, oh, look what you did wrong. Um, but that fundamentally shifts most of the business models in the bank, really. You know, if you don't bear trap people with overdraft pe- uh, pieces and actually you move to a model where you're informing and telling them that this is going to happen and how they should stop it uh, to avoid any of the fees, then... You know, we, are we going into a model where people are more open to be paying for a much better experience within, within Absolutely. banking? Absolutely. That's the whole point. When you start the shift in the business model, you're moving away from what customers understand that when you've got technology enabling operational costs to go to zero, they realize they shouldn't be paying 45 quid for an international wire transfer, which I balk at every time I see. And they can go to something like TransferWise or Asimo, and I'm paying five quid to grant, you know, to, instead of 45. They understand that that actually can be done, that the technology enables that. So why can't the bank actually offer the same service? So if you're looking at a zero rate, uh, zero interest rate environment in terms of, of your deposits or your, your your lending as a bank, you already know interest is at zero. And even if the Fed or LIBOR changes the rate, in fact, actually the Fed raises it, 
uh, this year twice, it doesn't matter. It's still near zero. And if you understand that your customers realize that operational costs are being driven to zero, they're going to have a different expectation in terms of their cost of service. You've already got all of these sunk costs that you have to write off anyway. You need to look at new business model and it has to be value additive. And that's where you charge. That's where the service is in financial services. It's value added and has nothing to do with the transactions and products and services that we understand today. It's going to be very different. That's why business model evolution actually matters. And that's why they should be paying attention to this innovation in business model. Mm. Seems sort of obvious, right? Give good service. People will pay for it. It's amazing how that works. No, no, they will. I mean, my dream is to leave Paris one day, get on a plane, land in California to go back to headquarters and have my bank pop up an app saying, hey, welcome to California. You're going to pay this percentage fee for every transaction you do. They could do it so easily. They have all my data, but they don't use it. Indeed. All the uh, opportunities that are, are there. And I think it's we're on the cusp, right? It kind of feels like we're uh, we're getting there. But it's um, it, very interesting on this one, particularly to see how, you know, one of the big banks are kind of reacting to that in that, you know, significant shift on this one. It feels like the, the thing that kind of pulls me back on this one in fear slightly is that shaving off 30% of your revenue from current accounts and not making a dramatic change in what the operating cost actually is of those things spells like quite a that you know these guys are the big banks are definitely robin hood you know like there's you can kind of give some stuff away but somebody's going to get it somewhere so well let's you know, be honest you there's always up? cross subsidization across lines of business and maybe this is an evidence of, of lines of business actually breaking down silo and doing cross subsidization which is the smart move but if it's it's a pretty brave move i think from lloyd's well i mean cannibalizing your existing revenues to, to your point david you know that this stuff is already happening you know that you, you're losing market share to or you know to Revolut and so many other players out there. So you can either do it now and try to do something about it, or you can wait and just wait for it to you know, to happen in a couple of years. Getting out ahead yeah. makes sense to me for no, sure. But that, they're, highly that, profi- they're highly profitable. They are, but I mean, if Jeff's got a point around cannibalization, the point of disruption is to actually identify a revenue stream that will disappear and it reappear somewhere else, and you make it reappear somewhere else, and that starts with cannibalizing your own revenue stream right now. So this is the first step in them actually doing proper disruption in their own business model, which is saying, I'll cannibalize what I know is going to be cannibalized by someone else. I'll do it myself because I can actually put a different revenue stream somewhere I haven't identified by doing this exercise. I may not have pre-identified it, but I'll definitely see it as I go through this remodeling. Cool. So I say pretty good move. Indeed. See what happens next. Uh, Moving on. So another story from Business Insider. We have WorldPay shares drop sharply after it agrees 9.1 billion deal. Wow. Wish I had a big share of that company right now. Um, I, I think this is super interesting that, uh, you know, it's changing hands uh, again. It feels like WorldPay has been sort of moved around reasonably frequently. Uh, it was only, I think, five, six years ago that RBS sold uh, 80% of its stake in this for, I think it was just under 1.7 billion. So whatever those guys did over that period of time, bravo, gentlemen, because uh, did a did a pretty good job. But, um, you know, payments clearly very, very hot in this space still in terms of, uh, you know, a very big ticket sale going for something that um, I, I guess are is under a, quite a lot of pressure from a lot of players coming into the market. What do you guys think? I think we were speechless, right? I think that says enough. <laughs> you didn't put a little finger next to your mouth when you said billion. Indeed. Well, I, it, it feels like a... Well done, well paid. B, did RBS probably underprice this when they sold it? Well, are they also doing a fire sale? 
out of necessity, right? It might be a fire sale under necessity. Well, you know, they just did that fit out in their um, angel office, so maybe it was a little bit more expensive than they anticipated. So, (laughs) yeah. What's interesting, though, is if you look at how the market responded to that, so the the, the shares dropped fairly significantly once the deal was announced, which... You know, basically, it looks like investors are not too sure about this one. Is is that the market saying though that they undervalued this to sell it? Because I guess you know, if you've got nine point one billion and RBS sold it for one point seven that period of time ago, then actually this seems like a hell of a good deal for for whoever it was that bought it from them. So I don't know. This uh, uh, like great, well done. Enjoy your yachts. We look forward to seeing you in the future. And on that note, let's hear from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Okay, let's get on with part two. Uh, first up, we have a story in Finextra. So this is HSBC and Barclays join EU project to test the use of digital IDs for cross-border banking. Wow, only just got through that statement, I have to say. So what do we think of this one? Is this another bunch of banks getting together to do a interesting POC or is there some substance behind this? I don't know, but when you talk about identity, and that's kind of what I want to talk about lately because that's the new business model for banks, FYI. Uh, it's this notion of sovereign identity, and you've actually got a conglomeration that includes uh, telco, right? So how you have multiple party verification of someone's identity, and that turns it to an aspect of sovereignty, which is what you actually need in order to have a really mobile bank experience, irrespective of jurisdiction, border, or the actual financial institution. So this has legitimacy in terms of the evolution of the business model for banking. So I don't think it's fluff. And I don't think it's PR. I actually think there'll be some substance around it, especially when you've got ID2020, you've got the UN focused on sovereign identity, etc. And banks hold a ton of information to verify that. It's interesting that sort of only HSBC and Barclays are involved in this because we've got uh, GDS, we've got Orange, uh, the Open Identity Exchange are getting involved in this process as well. So it it kind of feels like it's got quite a lot of momentum and as you say, Geller, quite a lot of the big boys involved. Yeah, but I think the two big boys doing that legitimizes it, right? The moment you get, say, JPMC or you get B of A, uh, you get BNP or SockGen, you get Deutsche Bank on this, then you pretty much, then you know they're taking identity as a service pretty seriously. But also if you do this with 20 banks from day one, you know it's going to take an awful lot of time right. to actually pull this off. So I think you're doing it with a small number of organizations who are committed to doing this. It makes perfect sense. And they set standards, right? It's, exactly. And, and, and it, it addresses a real customer pain point. 
So when I moved to to the UK about eight years ago, opening a bank account and getting a mortgage and was a real, real pain in the ass. Uh, so anything that can be done to you know, speed up that process and make it easier for you as a customer is is very much welcomed. You know who they should involve in? The Estonian government in terms of oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If they had that, it would cinch the deal. We just threw some blockchain into that as well, did we? It's like like my, my VC sort of spidey sense are tingling right now. I was going to say, if Simon will be here. Like, <laughs> be it, like, at least listening back to this right now, just like salivating on the tube, I can, <laughs> I can tell. Gabrielle, what do you think on this one? Well, I like her point about the Estonian government because what they did was just unbelievable. I've been tracking them for the past three years. and the whole, They've also I, been tracking you. Um, <laughs> I would not be so... I would... Please. I hope they're tracking me. I hope I'm somewhere on their blockchain. I don't have any medical records there. I but, uh, I, I not have that you my know e-residency. Of. You do? In you Estonia, got it? Absolutely. For the reason of portable identity. Oh, I wanted more than one government and one bank or five banks as I may have them. I want actually multiple verification of who I am. And there's an it's entire- called edging your bets slightly, isn't it, as well? You know, yeah, like, I'm, I'm a risky customer, let's be honest, right? <laughs> I'm I'm shady lady. Of course I need to have verification. Well, wow. Look at me. I actually keep a healthy banking process, uh, well, a healthy br- banking identity transaction stuff in about five different countries just have a presence exactly right because i never know where i'm going to be sent next and just getting a mortgage being verified having an address i have all sorts of friends addresses on my bank accounts just to prove i exist somewhere because if i come back to the uk or if i go back to the states just getting all that stuff done all over again is going to take so much time sovereign identity sovereign portable identity but i mean based on the estonian model in terms of how they've digitized it Bob's your uncle. You got the problem halfway solved. You, you guys sort of seem like spies to me now. Yeah. So, like, you know, is your name really Gallo? No, I- it's actually not. And you know full well it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So uh, next up, there is quite an interesting one here. So we have in a, an article in TechCrunch. This is Stripe ads support for two little startups I've never really heard of. Uh, a place called- and WeChat. Is this... These guys kind of, I guess, just sort of getting onto the the sort of program here and everybody's kind of monetizing uh, traveling uh, Chinese people. So is that the idea here? Is they just sort of being able to kind of monetize it from Stripe's perspective or is there a bigger agenda? Oh, well, if you look at market size, that's a dumb thing to not to do, right? Makes sense, right? Money and population population makes kind of sense. But I actually think it legitimizes the model for the U.S. Like when you start to actually examine e-commerce, banking, and telco, and telco in the sense of social media chat or, or communications, then this is a great way for Stripe to actually start to to play that card. And I mean, the natural next step is making it Amazon and and turning into whatever finance sources you can. So you have a conglomerate of, of money. Or Alibaba. But I mean, I think it's a, it's a smart move either way. Does it become a sort of a, a, a kind of a small step then, though, to those things basically dominating those markets as well? So we, we've heard from uh, Rita Liu a number of times in terms of actually what the sort of global expansion potential is for things like Alipay. So, you know, it only takes a very small switch being flicked at that point. Um, you know, Amazon itself is usually very sort of reticent about actually supporting anything else. We were trying to buy an Apple TV from Amazon this week and was failing because they don't sell them because of, like, the fire. Um, so, you know, are they going to support this stuff, given it's probably quite uh, conflicting with their objectives as well? It feels a little bit like the tech boys all ganging together to keep the old school people away. Um, and I feel like that's just the way it's going to be, isn't it? It's like if you're, like, three or four people that can connect with each other and you've got 
a large amount of the market. Why wouldn't you? Um, rather than having some sort of new entrant come in. Well, it's also prevented measure against GOPA, right? So if you're looking at what GOPA could possibly do in the States, it's the same principle. Like you know, they're hedging their bets and getting in early. You stake the claim first, you hike up the mountain. It's at, you're at the top of Everest before anybody else is. And if you've got Google, Amazon, uh, PayPal, you know, any of that, you've, you've got that opportunity. You've already been to the, been to the, been to the top of Everest. Mm. But but these things dwarf that, don't they? You know, we, we were all at Money 2020 in Copenhagen and actually like the fund, I, I sat at the back of, uh, in fact, me and you, Ed, we sat at the back of the presentation that uh, Rita was, was doing. And, uh, you know, the minute where she starts talking about 450 million active customers, you'd like audibly hear gasps in the audience. So, you know, is this, to your, to your point, Geller, is this sort of a, an eventuality that actually these things are, you know, coming for the sort of Western world and we've got to get used to it? Why not? When you've got 450 million users, what's another 450? What's another billion, right? I mean, you've got the scale already. You can you can scale up. That's just in China, by the way. I mean, you look at they've got another 300 million in India. Well, I mean, they're also putting 250 million unbanked into the into the financial services market, right? That's That's a government mission. And how did they do it? Regulation. Ladies and gentlemen, integration of multiple services into one platform. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Ed. Would that be a, wait a minute, wait a minute, marketplace? Sounds a little bit is like there, Is there a plug coming? No, no, no. no. <laughs> or maybe a plug and play. Oh, oh nice. And moving on, speaking of APIs, uh, so there's the story on next from Finextra. This is Natchez set sites on standardized APIs. Wow. This is quite a, a, a big kind of aspiration to kind of lead to within the U.S. market, right? How do we think this is actually going to happen? Do we think this is actually going to happen? Well, uh, if they can address real-time payments, then maybe we can talk about API, right? Are we putting the cart before the horse in this particular case, or am I just... Yeah, but, uh, but I guess, you know, in, in Europe, we get very sort of um, focused on APIs being a payments play, but actually there's a whole range of products that it isn't affecting in that space. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to wait for the payment API to, or the, even wait for the APIs to to sort of reside for mortgages or savings or anything else that actually True, sort of comes True, but NACHA is the North American clearinghouse. So if we're talking about what they focus on, it's going to be payments. But also depends on who's... Who's going to get behind this? Why? Hmm. So, what what what's the adoption going to be like? If if they get some of the big banks involved, some of the other technology companies involved, some of the payments technology companies involved, then you know they might get somewhere. But yeah, we've also seen in the UK how difficult it is to agree a common you know, set of standards for open banking. Right? We know how difficult that has been, uh, and the US is massively behind the UK when it comes to APIs. It's this, there's this funny thing that goes on and, and sort of standardizing APIs is, is like, it feels like it's like, this is the holy grail for APIs, which it's not, right? You don't necessarily need to, to make them functional and work for m- many people. Um, it's more around the sort of testing and, and the speed to get things in. Um, but, you know, this is again, people going in the financial services world of which we all work, APIs exist. But actually, if we, so. <laughs> yeah, we know. They're, they're a thing now. But think Turn about over it. a car, freak out, paste <laughs> yeah. your loved ones. Crap. No, oh, but, crap. But here's the thing. When you actually look at it from a regulatory perspective, you've got a federated model in the States, right? You don't have a single regulator. You have 50 state regulators. And you have a, a number of federal regulators that actually have to, you know, work together. And they don't have a sandbox environment. And they certainly don't have a greenhouse sandbox environment where you've got 
multiple states agreeing on multiple standards. So you've got this fragmented regulatory approach that maybe APA standard would actually help them get their ducks in a row. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be a really difficult one. I think like anything that we've seen, anything good that can be put in place, whether it be, you know, healthcare or API standards can very quickly be undone by the uh, next gentleman sort of coming into the, uh, to the, to the fray. So I think they've got a really tough one on this one, mainly because of uh, everything that we've kind of seen in Europe on this one sort of showing the the way to a certain degree of, of actually how hard it is, to your point, Jeff, of getting a, a bunch of banks to agree, A, that this is a thing that they should be doing, but B, actually how to even fundamentally approach this. So I think this is going to be a really, really interesting one to, to sort of see coming through. So uh, best of luck is what I have to say. I mean, seriously, good luck to you. I wish you all the best because it would actually change. It would change a lot of the regulatory cooperation landscape. It would. It would fundamentally shift how the banking landscape in the US actually sort of functions. So uh, fingers crossed that happens. Next up, a story on BBC News. So this is RBS uh, agree a 3.65 billion settlement over risky mortgages in the US. Now, this is one that feels like it's been sort of bumping along for a little while. Um, you know, I think we've been sort of seeing various different sort of headlines around how much this might be over a, over a while. And I think there was a quite a large number to, to start with in, in terms of the, you know, pre-negotiated rates, shall we say. So uh, 3.65 billion, that's another big fine. What do you guys think? I mean, how long, yeah, I think the point is, how long has this been thing been going on for behind sort of closed So doors? when is it going to stop? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't like to comment. I just, I mean... This is kind of knock on from 2008. Well, well, that, well that's the thing. It, it's an idea that this was basically something that happened prior to the financial crisis that is still being kind of coming through. You know, it feels like it's a, you know, next up spoilers on what happened on Lost type thing, like bad <laughs> things happened prior to 2008. So, you know, the, the sort of how many lawyers and how much sort of uh, process has been taken up getting to this point, it just seems quite, quite terrifying. I mean, honestly, I'm just starting to look forward to seeing RBS and good news put together. Well, there's a lot of it. Those guys, those guys have definitely been sort of coming out and saying a lot of uh, a lot of positive things, and definitely kind of getting the uh, the government off the balance sheet with regards to a lot of the, um, the the sort of share pieces that they're moving towards. Seems like a a very good step in the way. But um, I agree, it would be good to um, start seeing some of the, uh, the the sort of positive stories really sort of filtering through. Um, next up, we have uh, speaking of positive news, we have one on. On CNBC. So this is Revolut raises $66 million in VC investment. That's a pretty large amount of money, right? The the article seems to allude to basically this, this is sort of global domination, he says, kind of sort of channeling Dr. Evil on that one. So, you know, moving into Asia, moving into the US, does that feel like the right thing to do for Revolut? I mean, I think if their the business model is predicated on FX, then I mean, those are huge channels, right? That's that's the that's the core thing. When you speak to any of the large FX players, and uh, you talk to about them with all the challenges, they're like, yeah, but that's all well and good in those channels, but the, the big channels we still own. So there's a big movement for them into that. I think that's obviously where you get the valuation of 350 million. Um, I think that was what it was. Um, but yeah, congratulations to them on that. Um, some very nice people there. Um, but yeah, so obviously, you know, it's not, you know, they're, they're also kind of looking at the avenue of the, the challenger bank in the UK. We've definitely read their head there, but it, it feels like if, if they're coming in with the people like 
the indexes, the Baldertons and um, Ribbit of this world, then there's definitely a big play for those channels um, to, feel, to, to go. I feel like Revolut has been like super stealthy about this whole thing, right? I don't mean like sneaky. I mean like just being like quietly going across their business and getting shit done. So, you know, if you kind of look at the sort of stats that they're, they're sort of quoting in terms of their number base, you know, you brought this up earlier on, Ed, but 700,000 customers that they've actually managed to attract in two years, you know, arcing back to our, you know, Bank sitting and uh, putting out statistics, putting their fingers in their ears, saying nothing to worry about, just carry on. 700,000 customers is a big amount of base to go for. So, you know, if they're looking at this as a, you know, the more geographies you're in, the, the bigger of the earlier adopters that we can get, the bigger that we can fix this particular niche of a use case that we can actually address, similar to something like N26 has done. You know, in N26 have gone across a multiple of geographies to pick out the earlier adopters in that space. Then this just seems like a, a really smart move. But, you know, I still kind of come back to what are they doing with $66 million in, in VC investment? Is it about marketing? Because actually all the tech's there, right? Well, I think, I think what's really interesting is not necessarily they're, you know, they're moving into the US and moving into Asia. I think what's really interesting is them you know, diversifying their portfolio. So the plans to launch like a personal international bank account. You know, I think they're looking to launch an investment platform as well uh, for customers. So that to me is the interesting bit. Uh, the the so product m- diversification ex- point, exactly. right? Yeah. I mean, if you look beyond current account, this is one of the first challengers that's moved beyond just current account offers. What's interesting though is the IBAN is related to crypto. So they're actually playing in that space too. So when you talk about early adopter marketing, that's really early adopter marketing, right? It legitimizes crypto in a in a challenger bank for the first time in a real way. They they play that down though, don't they? I don't think they sort of lead with that from a, a marketing perspective. One, one of the things that I really liked at the end of this article actually was the sort of um, confirmation that Revolut see London as the their home going forward. So despite all of the kind of uh, you know Brexit, is it? Uh, hard, soft or uh, medium in terms of how you'd like your Brexit, then, you know, these guys are saying London is still going to be our home. It's still going to be the capital of uh, everything that's happening from a very strong sort of financial market. So they're, they're not going anywhere, which is which is good from my perspective. Yeah, double down on on a on a single spot to, to fix out of and London makes sense, right? You, you, despite the politics. But what's interesting, it'll come up in terms of passporting license for this portable IBAN, right? They're going to run into some challenges. So whether or not they choose to have an office in, in an internal office in somewhere in Europe that'll allow different sort of passporting, they've got to actually play that when you look at the when you look at the portable IBAN. It's actually interesting on passporting. I think it becomes more difficult once you put someone on the ground. There's some interesting kind of discrepancies there. But, you know, if you could go crypto. Then you actually can bypass a lot of the jurisdictional problems, right? But then again, if you go crypto and you are regulated, then regulators still aren't very happy about it. But this is also the same. same. But here's the the regulators don't have a lot of policy around it. So you've actually got a lot of freedom in terms of exploring the business model maintaining basic compliance around privacy and and reporting and accounting and and balance sheet etc but in the crypto space you do not have a lot of that that strict regulatory oversight so that actually is that allows them a lot of flexibility well you know what they say when you go crypto you never go back right so um moving on to our last story and we always like to leave with an interesting one and this is probably no exception. So this is a story coming out of, uh, so it's over on The Guardian. This is a Texas man trapped inside an ATM who was then rescued by passing notes through the receipt slot. 
Okay, I, I have, I, I, I just, I, I ow. So, so this guy became trapped inside the ATM and was slipping notes to customers via the receipt slot, which must have just baffled people. Yeah, I'll be yeah. honest with like, you. Like, wouldn't you think that's a candid camera sort of, sort of, you know, like it's a joke, it's a prankster. Wait a minute, isn't this how all ATMs actually operate? <laughs> yeah, there is a little green man inside of it. It has yes. your little money <laughs> ad. Yeah, the, the, the literal mechanical Turk that's actually <laughs> sort of sitting behind there. And if you don't know what that is, Google it. But apparently, this guy left his cell phone and his swipe cards uh, that he needed to actually get outside of the room that uh, freed him from this uh, little uh, trap that he was in. Uh, became trapped there and started writing on papers, please help, I'm stuck in here, which, I'll be honest, would have freaked me out if I'd just withdrawn some money. It doesn't actually say what time of day this actually was, but if I'd been sort of uh, out of the local pub and suddenly the ATM was telling me to uh, help it to free itself, I think the the rum had probably gone a little bit too far. So uh, I actually am seriously envisioning, how does this happen? Because you have a private room with the ATM machine, you're just trapped in the private room, or is in the ATM machine himself? And this is where I question the journalistic accuracy of the language choice because he's trapped inside an ATM. What the hell does that actually mean? This, I think he was trapped inside the room of the background of the ATM, which I'll be honest with you, given the amount like, of money that's in an ATM. But I mean, there's so much in this. I mean, you have to read this article. I mean, what part of it says, some, some customers appear to dismiss these notes as a prank. Oh, my ATM is pranking me again. Whatever. <laughs> like... Like I mean, Aston Kutcher's making yeah, a comeback. Yeah, He's going to like Aston, step out. Again. Whatever. I'm just going to go home now. I mean, I would have just said, give me, give me 10k and I'll let you out. Yeah. Well, we already know you, you 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 do blackmail all the time. I know, and the payment will clear. I promise you, know you at the end of the month. <laughs> and that wraps up the news. Before we wrap up, let's find out where we can hear a little bit more from our guests. So, Gala, where can people learn more about you on the internet? Google. It's a good place to start. And then if you want, if you want to talk to Jeff, I'm sure he has the encryption key for that, <laughs> for that model. Ed, where, we can, where can we find more about Bud and yourself? This is bud.com. If you actually even send us uh, a little feedback note, I will pick it up. Oh, yeah. <gasps> I'll get a notification on my phone as I do. And uh, the bots will tell me. Nice. Jeff, where can people learn more? Go on Twitter at Jeff Tyson. Wonderful. And Gabrielle, where can people learn more? Hashtag Paris Fintech. Fantastic. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe and give us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. 